Uh, when I was a kid, I was, I was probably between six and seven. We can look at this photo here. Uh, that's, I'm the short one. Uh, we went on this beach trip with my family. We were going to go there for a whole week, and among the things we were going to do is deep sea fishing. And actually, if you look in that bucket, I mean, we are like three f- fish shy of poaching here. That is so much fish. In terms of a fisherman, I peaked at a young age. Uh, but we went there, and I had never gone before. And I was about six or seven, so my mom would have us pack our own bags, and she would tell us, you're going to be there for this many days, so pack this many of everything. And so I packed everything, but I'd been to the beach before, and it was summer. It was going to be hot. I packed a pair of sandals. It's all you need for the summer. It's all you need for the beach. Uh, not so with deep-sea fishing. I'd never gone before. I didn't realize that you wake up at an hour so early, it's nearly demonic. Like, you wake up so early to go deep-sea fishing, you wonder, should we have gone to sleep at all? When you have to be two miles off the coast when the sun is rising, that's early. Uh, It's really cold at that hour, extremely cold. And so when my parents, the night before, as we're laying our clothes out, they wanted to see we had all what we needed, and I laid out a pair of sandals, uh, they began to panic, because there's no time to buy me shoes, And there were no spare shoes at my grandparents' beach house that would fit someone of that size. So they came up with an idea. They put two pairs of socks on each foot, and they took sandwich bags and wrapped it around that. And actually, if you zoom in, next next photo here, you can see there's my sandals, socks, and sandwich bags uh, that I went out with. Having never gone deep sea fishing before, uh, I hope the arrow helped, by the way. That was furiously scrambling that on this morning. Um... I'd never gone deep sea fishing. I I honestly didn't know what to pack. Uh, And we need uh, often people who do know to help us figure out what we need for things we've never done before. We still aren't entirely sure what we need for the journey ahead, for our life and what's next for us. New plans for us uh, require new things. But by his care, God is feeding and preparing and getting us ready for what's next. In essence, he's packing today things that we will need tomorrow. And I believe that there are many people in this room that have things that are coming in your life that are new. And maybe you feel it. Maybe you feel this sense of life is going to change soon. Or maybe it's going to take you by surprise. But we know that God is not done with us and we have not reached the finish line. So you could expect change and you could expect new things are coming. We've been on a series called Reset, a fresh start for new beginnings, that God is calling. It's an expectation that if God is calling us to new beginnings, he's preparing us for those things today. And so for us as a church, we've had all kinds of different things, all kinds of new leadership. Uh, And as we prepare for new things, we know that God is instilling us as a community to reach our community. He's working in us as a body to care for each other. You know, what's interesting about homes is that uh, we don't, we're not there all the time. We, we, we live there. It's the place we go out from, and it's the place we return to, and we dwell there. But we're not there all the time. So it is with peace. Peace is so critical to our spiritual formation. We're not always going to be at peace. But it is intended that it would be the place where we live that it would be home, that it would be a native state. It would be that which we go out from, which we return to, and what we dwell in. 
Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and his city is called the City of Peace. Jerusalem translates to uh, possession of peace or foundation of peace, Salem being the same root word as shalom. Christ came to bring peace. Peace is, is offered to us by God at so many moments in our lives when we least expect it. We serve the kingdom, but not through fearful works and and going at it as hard as we can. We do so from a position of peace, coming out from peace, going back to it. That God desires that inner peace would dwell in your soul and in that native environment of what we're called to be in. We grow, we're formed. Humanity was meant to be in a paradise. And not a paradise without work. There was actually a calling before anything happened that they would live in this paradise, but they would also expand and grow it. That there was a mission. And so in Christ, as things are getting restored, we find that he does want a paradise home within us. He wants a place for us to be at peace that we could grow. And so we're gonna read some encouragement Jesus had to his disciples regarding peace on the night he was betrayed. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is interesting because this is a tense night. Um, Judas is gonna storm out of the room. Jesus just confirmed to them just a few uh, moments before that everyone at that table is gonna abandon him. And the most of all will be Peter, who was the most brash leader of them all, saying, don't let your hearts be troubled is like telling someone who's freaking out, don't freak out. Or like my daughter will come to me and she'll be like, okay, dad, don't get mad. I'm like, oh, oh no. And it's always a surprise. And it's always a wet one. I don't know, it's like milk spilled into the bed or something. It's just, it's, this, it's just like, I want you to have peace, but it's gonna be an incredibly difficult time. How can you have peace in those moments? He goes on to tell them what the basis of their peace is. That it's not that things are going to be good. It's going to be a bad night for them. It's going to be one of the worst nights they've ever known. The source of their peace is their belief in God and their trust in Jesus. It's not based on their preparedness, how ready they are for the for what's going to come up ahead of them. Emotionally, they weren't very ready. They didn't even have the energy. They start falling asleep in the garden. They can't stay up praying. They panic when the guards come. Many of them scatter. Few of them follow along with them, and the few that do are either hiding or deny Jesus entirely. So they're not prepared, and they're not trusting in their own faithfulness. They're they're going to trust and have peace because they have faith faith in the faithfulness of Jesus that it's his confidence that they get confidence from. I grew up uh, entirely homeschooled, never went to public school in my life. A little fact that you should all know about me. And we, so for me, the highlight of our lonely week was homeschool group. It was the big deal. We went to Gresham to East Hill Church. They had a big homeschool group they had there. And, you know, most nights when you're a kid, you don't want to wake up early in the morning, like going deep sea fishing. But... When it's homeschool group, you've got your clothes laid out. Like, the, the wrink, like you thought it'd be like, it's wrinkle-free pants. They're ready to go. Your best outfit was chosen. 
I had, and it's probably in storage somewhere, one of those like beret hats, and it was leather. Wore it on my favorite days. Do you know what I wore every Tuesday on homeschool group day? It was that leather hat. I don't know if anyone ever saw my hair. But it was a really, it was so, it was just a meaningful time. You need that social time. It was my favorite day of the week. And I was uh, early for a dentist appointment the other day. It's across the street from that church. So I'm just wheeling around. I went through the parking lot, and I hadn't been in that parking lot forever. And I just, you just feel this like, oh, sentimental. Like you, you just feel this comfort come back to you that you forgot about. Like smelling a smell you haven't smelled in a very long time. So much of childhood sentimentality is this moment to where we get a break from something for so long that by the time it comes back, we remember just for a split second something we forgot, which uh, is a life without our now adult worries, that we have to be the ones to get things done. I'm telling you, when I found out that I packed the wrong shoes for deep sea fishing, I was a little nervous, but not nearly nervous as the adults that had to solve that problem. That are going through and came up with a solution that did work. I don't remember my feet getting wet, so sandwich bags, way to go. But we have this certain piece that, like, they're going to take care of it. That they are going to be the ones that make it happen. There is a work behind the work that you can be an employee, and if you ever become a boss of where you were an employee, you feel the sudden new pressure of, but now it's up to me to make sure things get done. This is the relief that is the essence of Sabbath. Sabbath being the spiritual rest formation when Israel would not work because they trusted that on that day when nothing happened, all their neighbors, all their competitors were, were forging armor, getting food. They were doing everything else. Israel would rest and do nothing that day because they trusted that God would take care of it. This weekly rhythmic reminder you're not the one that gets everything done at the end of the day. You're not the one responsible for all things. Sabbath is an act of faith. And uh, even now for myself, I've shared a few times of when I decided that I would keep a Sabbath day, that, I, that for one day I don't do any work and I make sure I prepare for it. It can be very busy. It can make for a very hectic day the day before. But it's a day when I stop and I can think of all the things I could be doing with that time. And I realize that I may not be on shift right now, but God is, and he's the one taking care of it. It takes an act of faith that continually grows people, and it's opening ourselves to the affectionate care of God, that we would have a kind of faith that is, if I could dare say it, juvenile, a belief that God really is your father in heaven an actual dad who is going to be the one that cares for things, and we can kind of step back into the childhood sentimentality. Someone else is the one that figures this out for me. I did. I packed my bags for that trip as a kid. I did my part. I screwed up, and they were the ones that had to solve it in the end. This is the work that God does in our lives, and I don't mean to say this in that the kind of peace we have and the confidence that we would have in him, not on our own preparedness or faithfulness, but this confidence in him would ever mean that we are called to be a sloth and do nothing. You cannot read scripture and get an idea that you're meant to do absolutely nothing. But you do get a sense you're not supposed to be a workaholic. 
The workaholic is a modern term that was built. It's a play on words based on the term alcoholic, but it's a person who basically has taken the good thing that is work and has twisted it to where they feel that they are a person with no value and no identity apart from their ability to do and to work. Workaholics, this is one of the reasons why they don't even offer or they don't, uh, what's what I'm looking for, accept a lot of help because they don't want it. They don't want to feel like I only got this done because people helped me. They want to work hard and get it done all on their own. A workaholic is a person who cares so much about doing and doing and doing that they strike a terrible imbalance in their life that brings disaster to other areas, relationships, family, spiritual growth. One of my favorite verses I found on this, I found it uh, actually just this week and it jumped out to me. It's from Ecclesiastes, but it's this double proverb put together to give us the balanced picture. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, 5, and 6 says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. It is a fool who folds their hands and brings ruin to themselves. But we're supposed to work with one handful of increase and one of tranquility. There is a balance and a peace balance to find in life. I guess a vital question for us today is, is your life out of balance? Hands folded or both hands grabbing at the same time, is it out of balance? Imbalance is not whole. And you cannot have peace when you're not whole. When we are not whole, we forsake our peace. Jesus goes on to say, my, in my father's house, uh, or my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going to prayer, prepare a place for you. But if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me uh, that you may also be where I am. This image of many rooms is something that we can miss in today's modern culture because it had a picture then that kind of went without being said. In ancient times, wealthy homes had very large manors, and the whole family would live in it. If you've seen the movie Encanto, it's, a, it's kind of like that. One family has a house, everybody lives in it, and when you belong to the house, you are under the, the protection, the provision of whoever the patriarch is. Usually the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son. And having a place in the house, having a room in the house, didn't just mean you had a room to sleep in. It meant you belonged to the household. This is critical in a world where law enforcement is basically nothing. If someone wrongs you, it's your household's job to take up your case, to defend you, and to protect you. What Jesus is saying is that we share in the family of God, that we belong to that patriarch and that household, that our causes and our things, they're taken up by him, that he takes responsibility for us. Speaking of such a blessing of living in the household elsewhere, Jesus said, uh, now a slave has no permanent place with the family, but a son belongs to it forever. That being adopted in, having a place, it makes us not contractual obligations to God, but family, thick as blood, a responsibility and a belonging to him. 
basically it's a beautiful and poetic way for Jesus to say it's ties of love and belonging that has made God fully buy into you. He goes on to say, uh, you know the place to where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you know him and have seen him. We can spend so much time in our lives looking for the thing that's going to deliver us unto peace of what that is going to be. And in Christ, there is this completeness, this wholeness, the you didn't find some of it and you didn't find the beginning. You found the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the way, the truth, and the life. We have a way to go, meaning we know where to start. If you ever start something new, a new interest, a new hobby, just knowing where to start is the most difficult thing. Knowing who to start with is critical for what we're going to do with our lives. In him, we have a basis for what to believe, that in him, he is truth, that his words will define and interpret everything else. That is so critical because we live in a a time that we can do self-confirmation to our own bias better than we ever could. To where, I mean, Google actually, whether it intentionally or unintentionally does this, it actually remembers who you are, knows what you click, and it tries to find what you're looking for, which has turned out that it's a machine that's accidentally confirming our bias all the time. It's turned Facebook into a battleground. It's so hard to find out what is truth. Where do I, what edits everything else? There must be something that edits everything else. I love this proverb from uh, Proverbs 18. It says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone else comes forward and cross-examines. We hear something, it can sound perfect and it can sound right, but we need cross-examination. We need something that is going to come and we're going to say, but is that true according to something? And we fill in the blank with many things, but those of us who found Christ, we fill it in with truth. Is this truth True according to Jesus. And in him we have life, meaning true joy, hope, and meaning. He is all of these things. That in his presence we have a way, a truth, a life, beginning, end. And I find so interesting when I look at the life of the disciples, how much they grew just being with him. Because being with Jesus creates peace. It begets peace. It builds it. The disciples would have never known Jesus as a storm calmer had they not seen him do it. They were in a very terrifying situation. They were confused when he's sleeping in the front of the boat, and they're all freaking out, but until they saw the authority he had, they didn't realize, why does he have so much peace? And his peace, his storm calmer, becomes something they are confident in. And they never would have known him as a champion over sin and death had they not watched him die and rise back to life. If you want more confidence, if you want more peace in Christ, fellowship with him more often. Be with him as often as you can because he is peace incarnate. One of the greatest prophecies about our Messiah is this. For to us a child is born, 
To us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is the peace that we've been waiting for. I could go on about it, but I have a video that's just perfect for it. We're going to play that. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. And our peace said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
This as the world gives is so unique because it's speaking about the immediacy of Jesus' peace. That it comes quickly. As the world gives peace, the, the dominating image at that time was the Pax Romana, which is what we call it now. Rome dominated the world to such a point that it subdued its enemies and there was no equal among uh, all the kingdoms around it. And so they brought a sense of stability to the Mediterranean and all around the world, but with it they also brought incredible tyranny because uh, they dominated everything. So to Rome it was a great time, a time of peace, and the, and the Caesars would say, we brought you peace. One of the things they would tell people all the time. And many Jews, I think, expected Jesus to bring a peace in a similar way. The Messiah was to start a military revolution, conquer the world, become king, and to do it all immediately. But Jesus surprised everybody. He came to bring peace to the sick. He came to bring peace to those who are demonically oppressed, to the hurting. Peace came personally, it came meaningfully, and it came immediately without waiting for things to be perfect. And oh, how we do that. Too often we wait and we say, I will be at peace when this thing's dealt with. I'll be at peace when I get beyond this step in my life. I'll be at peace when this thing gets resolved, when this person changes their mind. That is how the world gives peace, waiting for things to be perfect. Jesus enters immediately. Have you ever tried to comfort someone who refused to be comforted? Maybe the pain was too close, whether they're anxious, they're angry, sad. You, you're trying to talk to them, but they just will not listen until they get through it all and come out the other end. And then maybe towards the end, and it could take a long time for them to wait and to hear the encouragement that you would want to say. If we can do this with people, we certainly can do this with God. To where the, when we say to ourselves, I won't be at peace, we're also saying to God, God, I'm, I refuse to be rested and at peace until you deal with the situation in my life. I think this was one of the challenges that made the Messiah difficult for Jews to accept is that Rome was still in charge. They wanted that dealt with before they were ready to receive any comfort or peace. But the peace came immediately. And that's not to say that God doesn't actually conquer the thing in your life that bothers you so much. If we sat in a circle in this room, all of us right now, we just stopped the sermon, we all sat here and got in a big circle and shared, we would hear endless testimonies of things God did in our lives, big things, things that he dealt with and changed and transformed. And we would have been very foolish had we waited for those things to happen until we had peace. You know, we're talking about this this like a tide coming in and out of change in our lives. God preparing us, the tide comes in, we have something new, he changes, he's moving us all the time. God is transitioning us from where we are to where we're gonna be and he's working in us now, changing us now, shepherding us now. There will always, always, always be something that you could easily say, I will not relax until it's dealt with. To where we, at first a person thinks, uh, I really need to pick a perfect retirement plan. And that stresses them out. And they think, well, as soon as I pick it, I'm going to feel great. And then they pick it and they start investing. And then they're like, I need, I need to invest more. And as soon as I can get up more every month, I'll be fine. And then they get it in and then the economy starts to shift. And they think, as soon as this shifting stops, I'll be fine. And then they start withdrawing cash out and they're retired. And they think, I can't overspend. 
I, I, I'm really worried that I will. And so as soon as I know I've got enough to go for the rest of my life, I'll be fine. And then on the last day of their life, they realize, dang, my retirement stressed me out my entire life. I never had peace. There's always something that whatever is next for you will one day be your current state. And something will come after that. And something's always going to stress you out. And God's message to you, Christ's message to you, is that he is your shalom and your peace right now. Right now, before things are resolved, whether things are resolved ever or not, he is your peace today. But we can do the same thing and refuse to be comforted. Sometimes we get stuck in a place and we're stressed and we're upset and we say, I pray and I hear nothing. God is silent. But if there is this rebellion in our own heart of God, I, I don't want to hear what you say unless you tell me you're going to end this problem. I refuse to be comforted. And if at any point it means that I must accept this is going to be my life for a long time or for at least the time that I don't want it to be. We can find that we shut our, spirit, our ears spiritually to God. Jesus gives us peace right here, right now. That's not to say you're never going to be in ang ang anguish. Jesus had incredible anguish. Paul, who also writes often about his uh, peace that he has through God, also writes about how the fact that Israel rejected God as a whole gave him incredible anguish. Globally, he thought about it all the time. But peace was still his home. It's where he went out from. It's where he returned to, too, and it's where he dwells in. And that guy seemed to be ready for the things that were ahead for him. From the time that he was converted to the time that he went off and learned about God for years, came back, spoke with the apostles, started a missions trip, went on a second one, took on uh, people that he mentored, spent his last few years mentoring a few people. He had many phases in his life. And he always left from a position of peace. Though he worked hard, he never used his second hand for increase. He had one hand of tranquility and one of increase. God wants to bring balance to your life. He wants to bring wholeness to your life that the, that the peace of Jesus isn't just an emotional comfort, but it is a wholeness. And it's available to us today. It's not waiting on things to get resolved in your life. Right now, in this moment, has been the greatest moment of your life ever to receive the peace of God. No matter how you're feeling, it's right now. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be working in our own hearts a spirit of submission to say that you are Father. Lord, help us to have that juvenile faith that we could just be obedient and to trust. Now, we will not try to take the reins from you and command our own lives and demand that things get done in the time frame that we are comfortable with, but that we could accept and be comforted by your peace now. Lord, I pray that right now we'd be able to accept that this is a peaceful moment worth living with the Spirit. Help us be present in our lives and quit waiting for future checkpoints to be there, that we could finally have permission to be glad, finally have permission to be happy, finally have permission to be at peace. I pray that the wholeness of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that in him is the fullness of the measure that we need to heal from the 
from the bottom up, inside out, to receive the incredible peace of God. Let it reign inside of us as we say, you're Lord, you can speak to me now, you can comfort me in the terms that you want. If we want you to be our Father, Lord, we have to also submit to your fathership. Come be the adult in our life and let us be kids in your presence again. We trust you with our homes, with our finances, with our careers, with our families, with our relationships, Lord. And though the wheels of time will turn and new things will come up, they would love to threaten our peace. Let us remember where we live, where we dwell, what we're called to have, what you came for, our Prince of Peace. Speak comfort to us today, Lord. Give us peace in your presence in your name, we pray. Amen.